All right, thanks for bearing with me a little bit on that mask stuff. I, uh, I just thank you for bearing with me on that stuff a little bit. And I'm sorry if I was a little too intense. But uh, anyways, uh, hey, one of my greatest joys as uh, a pastor, and it's not only a joy that I have as a pastor, but it's also confusing sometimes as a pastor. It's this. It's that I, as a pastor, get to meet all kinds of disciples of Jesus. I get to meet all kinds of disciples of Jesus. I get to meet rich disciples. I get to meet poor disciples. I get to meet resilient disciples. I get to meet weak disciples. I get to meet dedicated disciples. I get to meet flaky disciples. I get to meet wise disciples. I get to meet foolish disciples. Sometimes I meet some disciples who are just absolutely excelling in one area of life, and then I meet another group, and they're not excelling in that area, but they're excelling in areas where that other group is not excelling in areas. Areas. I, some people I meet that are disciples of Christ, as I meet them, I think, surely this person can't be a very faithful disciple of Christ. But then as I get to know them more, I realize they are a far more faithful disciple of Jesus than I am. And so this is one of my joys as a pastor, that I get to see this broad move of God through his people who each are disciples of Jesus. And I get to see how different each one, of them, each one of them are. But like I said, it's not just one of my joys. It can be a little bit confusing sometimes. It can be even a little bit hard for me as a pastor to see all kinds of different disciples because it just kind of makes life harder as a pastor. It would be a lot easier if all the disciples of Jesus were just all the same if they all were more similar than they were different. Like sermons would be easier. Uh, the mask conversation would be easier. Uh, the loving each other would be easier. All sorts of things would be easier for me as a pastor if the disciples of Jesus were kind of all the same. But, alas, they're not. Disciples of Jesus are not all the same, and part of me loves it. Part of me loves it, and the part of me that loves it is the part that by God's mercy can see that the Spirit is working in our world in a way where he is calling all sorts and all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds with all kinds of ideologies into the kingdom of God. He's calling all sorts of people, all different kinds of people, to, and getting them to listen to the call of Jesus to come and follow him. And I love that that's what the Spirit is doing. And the passage that we're in today in John chapter 19, it is a passage that reminds us of that. It reminds us that God is calling all kinds of people into his kingdom. He's calling all kinds of people to be disciples of Jesus. And as I looked over this passage, as I studied this passage in depth the last couple weeks, I realized that the sort of disciples we see in this passage are the sort of disciples I need to see and, and I need even highlighted to me. And I, I, I have a suspicion that some of us in the room need them highlighted to you as well. So, because it shows that Jesus, he's not making a church full of just kind of same, same, same robots. He's building a diverse body 
with all kinds of giftings and all kinds of differences because in that mission of God, as he brings in all kinds of people and that sort of diversity, what begins to happen is the witness of Christ goes throughout all the earth much more powerfully than if we are all just the same. And so what you'll notice in the New Testament as you read the New Testament is that as you see the different sorts of disciples throughout the New Testament is sometimes they're startlingly different from one another. And today we're going to see some of that today. And so here's what we're going to do today. We're going to go through this passage. We're going to look at this burial scene of Jesus. And there's these two guys that are mentioned in this burial scene. One is Joseph of Arimathea and the other is Nicodemus. And we're going to kind of, both of those guys are really interesting to me. And the different details we get about these guys, even though there's just a small amount of details about these guys, both of them are really interesting to me. So we're going to do a little bit of Bible study time together, just kind of looking at these interesting things about these guys and kind of zooming in on those those little interesting details. And then after we do that, there's three things that I think this passage today teaches us. There's three things that this passage teaches us. The first thing is about our call as a disciple. The second thing is recognizing where God is moving. And the third thing is something I'm calling reverse Phariseeism. Okay? So let's hop into the passage. We're going to be in John chapter 19. If, you, if you're new here, we love to go through books of the Bible. We've been going through the gospel of John for a while. And so uh, we're actually getting near the end. We'll finish this up right before Easter. And so we're going to be in John chapter 19, one of the four gospels. It's verse 38 is where we'll be. I'm just going to read this passage, and then we'll get into it and talk through some of these things. So verse 38 says this, After these things... Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews." Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. All right. So last week, what we saw was Jesus breathe his final breath. He declares it is finished. He is declaring about the work of God to fulfill all the promises of the Old Testament, to start this restoration journey, to atone for the sin of the world. Jesus declared that work is finished. And Pastor Tyler James from Redemption Arcadia, he preached on that last week, and it was really good. I encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon if you get a chance. And now... The scene that we have today, the passage we're in today, is Jesus' burial. We have these two unlikely disciples, unlikely guys, burying Jesus. One is a secret disciple. It says right there in the text, Joseph of Arimathea, he's a secret disciple because of his fear of the Jewish leaders. And then the other is Nicodemus. Now, it never labels Nicodemus a disciple, but I kind of think he probably is, became a disciple. And so I think he's kind of more of a hesitant to d- disciple. So we have a secret disciple and, and I think a hesitant disciple burying Jesus together. Two unlikely characters burying Jesus. So they take Jesus. They bury him in a tomb in a garden that was apparently near 
where Jesus was crucified. They, they take him through like the Jewish embalming process, if you will, like the Jewish burial process. They take 75 pounds of aloes and myrrhs and perfumes and these kinds of things and oils and, and put it all over Jesus. Now, 75 pounds of that stuff would have been really expensive. And it was more than likely that these two guys, or one of the two, paid for all 75 pounds to, to honor Jesus as they buried him. And so these two guys, they take the 75 pounds of aloes and myrrhs and they, they put Jesus into a tomb. Now, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, they're interesting to me because we just get like some really kind of sparse details about them. And it, almost like the sparse details about them tell a story in themselves about each of these guys. And so I, I want to take some time and zoom in. And we're gonna, this is what I'm saying is the Bible study moment. Let's zoom in on these two guys and see what, what the Bible tells us about these two guys. So let's start with uh, Joseph of Arimathea. What's really interesting about Joseph of Arimathea is all four Gospels mention him. All four Gospels mention him as, as the one who buries Jesus. Partially, I bet, is because all four writers probably want to say, look, go talk. This is the guy that touched the dead body. Like, this is the guy that touched the dead body. I, I, I think that's probably part of what's going on. But all four authors thought it was important to mention Joseph of Arimathea, which if you read the four Gospels, although there are definitely stories that are in all four Gospels, like Jesus' birth, for instance, instance isn't even in all four Gospels. It's only in two of the four Gospels. And so anytime there's something that's in all four Gospels, it's almost kind of like, let's pay attention a little bit. Let's see what's going on there. And so let's look at how the, the other three Gospels talk about Joseph of Arimathea and see what else we can learn about him. Um, the first is this. Is, let's look at Mark 15.43. It says this, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Okay, so the details we get from Mark, the added details we get from Mark about Joseph of Arimathea is he's actually part of the council, which means he's part of the Sanhedrin. You guys remember the Sanhedrin throughout all the Gospel of John, right? This is this group of guys who we, we know from history that there were 71 of these Jewish leaders who kind of religiously ruled over Israel. Israel, in their attempts to be a theosyncratic or centric nation, uh, had these 71 guys who acted as this group that kind of religiously ruled in one sense over Israel, and they called themselves the Sanhedrin. And what we learn about Joseph of Arimathea is he's one of those 71 guys. Now, what's interesting about it is, if you remember, the reason we know about the council, the reason we know about the Sanhedrin in the Gospel of John is because these are the guys that every time Jesus does something awesome, they want to kill him. Every time Jesus displays who he is or says something about himself, these group of guys get together and go, we got to arrest this guy, we got to kill him. We got to stop this guy. And Joseph of Arimathea who's looking for the kingdom of God, is one of those 71 guys. So that's, that's an interesting detail about him. We also see from Mark that he's kind of courageous. As, as much as he's fearful and afraid of the Jewish religious leaders that we see in John, he's courageous because he's willing to go up to Pilate. 
He's willing to, to use like his influence or his, his position as someone on the council, someone in the Sanhedrin to go up to Pilate and say, hey, I know we put Jesus through this. Can, we, can I have his body and can we bury him? And so we, we get this picture, Mark, of, of Joseph of, of Arimathea as someone who holds power on the Sanhedrin, one of the most powerful positions you can have in Israel. And he's courageous and approaches Pilate. Let's look at what Matthew, what Matthew says about Joseph of Arimathea. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Okay. So two more kind of details we get about Joseph of Arimathea from Matthew. The first detail is he's rich. He's a rich guy. He has a lot of money. He, maybe he's the one that bought this 75 pounds of aloes that we see in the Gospel of John. We also find that he's so rich that he lives near wherever this crucifixion happens, and he probably owns that garden that it's in, and he could hire people to cut out, out of rock, a tomb. I don't even know how they did that back then. No dynamite? I don't know what they're doing. Just, it's like Shawshank Redemption situation. I, I don't know what's going on. And so he was rich enough to hire people to do that. And so not only is he rich, but he is placing Jesus in his own tomb, in his own burial plot. He decides to give Jesus his own tomb. Huh. Look at, let's look at Luke 23, 50 and 51. It gives us another detail or two about Joseph. It says this, Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. I, I, love, I love how often in the Gospels they say he's someone that was looking for the kingdom of God. I just like that little added detail about him. But some of the things that we see here is essentially that he, he's not only scared, secret disciple as we know him, but he's a good and he's a righteous man. Like he could be described as good and righteous. And the reason I think the author in Luke is describing, or Luke is describing him this way, is because he stood up to the Sanhedrin. We get more of the story. Not only is he on the Sanhedrin, but as the Sanhedrin wanted to sentence Jesus to death, as the Sanhedrin wanted Jesus crucified, he was one of the lone voices, if not the lone voice, that said, this is not right. This is not okay. We can't kill this innocent man. And so Joseph of Arimathea, even though we only have about 10 sentences about him in the Gospels, he's really kind of an intriguing and interesting person. So that's Joseph. All four Gospels mention him. And, and I think everything they say is really interesting about him. So let's talk about Nicodemus. Let's talk about Nicodemus. This other guy that's with Joseph of Arimathea as they bury Jesus. You guys remember Nicodemus, right? Nicodemus, he enters the scene in the Gospel of John in John chapter 3. And what we know about Nicodemus is he's a Pharisee, he's a religious leader. Most people think he probably was on the Sanhedrin as well because he, uh, he's in these different contexts with the Sanhedrin. And so he's a Pharisee, he's a religious leader himself. And he, uh, on, in John chapter 3, he approaches Jesus at night to talk to Jesus. 
to figure out what he's about. Now listen, John is pretty intentional in how he writes the Gospel of John. Almost always, if he's mentioning night, something's going on there. And so I think John let us know here in the passage we read today and in John chapter 3 that he came at night because Nicodemus was scared to be seen with Jesus. Nicodemus was secretly going to Jesus. He didn't want the religious leaders to see himself associating with Jesus. You can kind of see why maybe Joseph and Nicodemus are friends or end up working together. And so Nicodemus goes to Jesus in the middle of the night, and they have this long conversation in John chapter 3. It's a beautiful conversation. It's one of the most famous conversations of Jesus where they talk about things like being born again and how the Spirit moves and how God loves the world and, and all kinds of things. And what you're kind of left with after you read through that interaction between Nicodemus and Jesus is you kind of le- you're left with going, I don't think Nicodemus gets it. It sounds like he's really confused. It's like, like when Jesus is saying, hey, you have to be born again, he's kind of like, do I have to get in my mom's womb again? Like he's just, he's not getting it, and you just kind of go like, will Nicodemus ever get it? And then there's two more scenes with Nicodemus in the Gospel of John. The next time we see Nicodemus in the Gospel of John is at the end of John chapter 7. Nicodemus uh, is in this group with the Sanhedrin around this council, and this council had just sent some of their own officers to go arrest Jesus. We, we preached through this passage. The officers go to try to arrest Jesus. Jesus is teaching all this amazing stuff, and the officers just come back and go, like, we're not going to arrest him. Like, he, he's say, like, he's too amazing. Like, the things he's saying are too amazing. We're not going to arrest that guy. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, they all say, who are you going to listen to, this guy or us? We are, the, we are the gatekeepers. We will tell you who's right and who's wrong, and that guy's wrong. You need to just go arrest him. He's, he's bad. And then we see Nicodemus. He stands up in that group who just want to hurt Jesus and stop Jesus and jump Jesus. And Nicodemus says, hey, this, is, this isn't right. Our own law says that we, we don't do it this way. We don't just jump guys. We don't just take guys. We don't just label guys. We don't just put condemnation on guys without first bringing them and questioning them and putting them through a trial first. This is all wrong. Nicodemus stands up. For innocent Jesus. And then that whole group, they turn on Nicodemus. It, it kind of like I read it, they kind of go, oh, oh, do you love him? Like, do you love him? Like, are you from his hometown? They knew he wasn't from Nazareth. And they just berate him and bully him and belittle him when he stands up for what's right. That's the second time we see Nicodemus. And then we don't see Nicodemus until he's here, bearing Jesus. Three scenes with Nicodemus. One, a kind of not getting it conversation. Two, he's now all of a sudden standing up for Jesus and getting flack for it. And three, he's burying Jesus. It's just really interesting to me. So uh, both these guys uh, together, they're guys that have stood up to the council. Both these guys seem to have some sort of fears of the council. Both had not abandoned the Sanhedrin to follow Jesus. One was a secret disciple. One we're not sure. 
But something about Jesus' death made them step out and partner together to bury Jesus. Something made them say, hey, we're going to forsake our power. We're going to forsake our accolades in order to bury Jesus. Because make no mistake, them going to bury Jesus in this way was not going to be good for them. I mean, just think. Nicodemus just said, hey, shouldn't we, like, shouldn't we do this trial the right way? And they turned on him in that moment. They definitely would turn on them in this moment as they bury Jesus. They didn't want Jesus to have any sort of honorable burial. They wanted him to be crucified and buried how most people who were crucified buried. And most people who were crucified were thrown into a pile of bodies, forsaken. That's how they wanted Jesus buried. Dropped on the pile of bodies, forsaken. But Joseph and Nicodemus say, no, we're not going to bury him that way. That's not okay with us. And I'm sure they would have gotten a lot of flack for that, if not lost all of their power, all of their privilege, all of their whatever you want to call it, all of their prestige, all of their uh, uh, status. I, I almost guarantee that would have happened. And so another interesting thing, too, about them burying Jesus is this. We know from the Gospel of John and the other Gospels, like Passover is starting. If you don't know enough about Passover, go study it. Passover is like Jewish Christmas. It is like the most important holiday of the year for the Jewish people. And these two guys are Jewish religious leaders. And by touching Jesus' dead body, by choosing to bury Jesus, they would not have been able to participate in Passover. They would have to go through a, a cleanly, like becoming clean process, a cleanliness process themselves, a religious process in order to be clean again. And that process took days after you touched a dead body. So they were so, something about the cross of Christ, something about what they saw there made them say, hey, we're willing to even miss Passover here. These guys, they unknowingly, they unknowingly live out Scripture. This one's just for free, but in Isaiah 40 through 55 is this long, beautiful poem in the middle of Isaiah. We don't know it because in English we don't see that it's a poem, but it's this long, beautiful poem. And it's this poem about how God is going to restore Israel, how God is going to restore everything, the whole world. And he's going to do it through these acts of forgiveness. And he's going to do it through this suffering servant of his. And what we know on the other side of the cross is Jesus was that suffering servant. Jesus was that one that brings that restoration. And Isaiah 53, 9, which is in this poem about this suffering servant, it says this. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. These two guys unknowingly take Jesus from his assigned grave with the wicked and they put him into a rich man's tomb. They are living out scripture and I think perhaps that's why these two guys stand out to me. So the, uh, sometimes you're just going to get this from me. I'm just a little bit of a Bible nerd. I just like to kind of nerd out and look at these interesting details. But I don't think the, the, this passage is just a bunch of interesting details. I think it, this passage has a lot to teach us. And so what does Joseph and Nicodemus teach us this morning? Three things. Here's the first thing, and we're going to talk about this for a while. And there's a lot of implications to this one. 
But the first thing that this passage teaches us is this. God is calling you to be a disciple wherever you're at. God is calling you to be a disciple wherever you're at. Wherever you are in life, God is calling you to be a disciple. Look at, look, look at Joseph of Arimathea. He's a, he's a secret disciple. He's part of the Sanhedrin, which you would kind of go, if you're part of the Sanhedrin, can you even be a disciple? If you don't abandon the Sanhedrin and follow Jesus, can you even be a disciple? And yet, that term disciple still gets used for him because he was, a, he was a disciple wherever he was at. And so God is calling each of you in this room to be a disciple wherever you're at. Some of you think you can't be a true disciple of Jesus until you reach a certain place in life or have a certain amount of wealth or get to a certain stage in life. That's just not true. Joseph of Arimathea shows us you can be a disciple, albeit a secret, kind of almost cowardly one in moments, wherever you're at, even if you're part of this group that sentenced Jesus to death. So if you're, if you're a disciple of Jesus, if you're in here and you consider yourself a disciple of Jesus, you have to get into your framework that you are a disciple of Jesus wherever you are. This is kind of why we say all of life is all for Jesus. There are not just certain portions of our life for Jesus. All of our life is. And that also means that we can be disciples wherever we're at, whatever we're doing. And so if we're disciples wherever we are at, it, it means some things. There's implications to that. I want to kind of flesh that out a little bit. Kind of the big idea is we're disciples where we're at, but now I kind of want to go, okay, what does that mean for us? What are the, some of the things it means? First, the first thing it means is if you are a disciple of Jesus wherever you're at, you're going to work differently. You're going to work differently than the people around you. Your work, the way you live out your career, your job, your vocation, whatever you want to call it, the way you live that out, the way you work, it's going to look differently than the people around you. It just is. Maybe not always, but it should at moments look differently. Both Joseph and Nicodemus, they clearly worked differently than their Sanhedrin brothers. They worked differently than those guys did. They wanted to do things the right way. They wanted to not let Jesus go to the cross. At least Joseph didn't want to let Jesus go to the cross. They worked differently. And I think they worked differently because I think both of them were disciples of Jesus. And so when you work differently as a disciple of Jesus, this is what it means. For you as a disciple of Jesus, the ends don't justify the means. A lot of the times the way we work in this culture is we say, hey, as long as we get to the end, it doesn't matter how we got there. Not true or so for the Christian. It does matter how we get there. The ends don't justify the means. That's how we work differently as Christians. For, for, for the disciple of Jesus who works differently, it means that sacrifice is worth it. Our work culture is kind of constantly saying, don't sacrifice for one another. Never do that. And, and some of that is because I think we sacrifice in unhealthy ways a lot of the time. Some of us, but most of us don't. But we, as disciples of Jesus, what we see is we see the cross and we see the sacrifice that Jesus made and we shape our lives to that. So even in our work, you'll find that sacrifice happens. Sacrifice is worth it. 
For us, if we're disciples wherever we're at and we work differently, that means that as we work gaining less esteem, power, and accolades is okay with us if it means we're following Jesus more truly and sincerely and faithfully. We work differently if we're disciples of Jesus. Another thing, uh, another implication for us, if we're disciples wherever we're at, is this. It means that we're going to steward our influence well. Okay, we're going to steward our influence well. Look at Joseph and Nicodemus. They were both not willing to go with the crowd in order to do the right thing. And, and Joseph in particular was willing to steward his influence in a way to go to Pilate and honor Jesus in his burial. We as Christians steward our influence well. You would be surprised how if you steward your influence well, if you steward your influence like someone that is a disciple of Jesus, how people will be able to look at how you steward your influence and see God. Like people will literally be able to see God through your work. Matthew chapter 5 gives a picture of this. People will be able to see who God is when you steward your influence well. And so some of you in here, you're going, I don't have very much influence. Listen, we probably all have some amount of influence except for like a couple babies in the room. Everybody's got a little bit of influence with somebody somewhere. It might be just your little sister. It might be an entire company. If you're a disciple of Jesus, wherever you're at, you're going to steward your influence well. The way you use your influence is going to be the way that Jesus wants you to use your influence, not the way that's most convenient for you. What, there, there's one other thing. If you embrace your identity as a disciple where you're at, there's one other thing that's going to happen. There's going to happen as you let the Spirit form your heart, change your heart, change your values, see God's values. There's another thing that's going to happen that both these guys did. You're going to find yourself standing up for what God stands up for. You're going to find yourself standing up for what God stands up for. To be clear, not what you want to stand up for. Not uh, what you want. You're going to find yourself standing up for what God wants to stand up for. We've, man, we've really baptized all of our perspectives a lot of times and all of our wants and desires. And we've, all, we've said this, when I stand up for this, I'm standing up for God. When a lot of times you're like, you're, not, you're just standing up for something that's not necessarily God. But when you let God's word drench you and form you and change you and the Holy Spirit form you and change you, you're going to find yourself standing up for the things that God stood up for. In other words, if you're a disciple wherever you're at, you're going to be one that speaks justice and lives out justice. Isn't that what these guys do? Isn't that what both Joseph and Nicodemus do at different points? Nicodemus at one point says, hey, this is not okay that you guys are treating Jesus this way and talking about Jesus this way. Joseph disagrees with the Sanhedrin and says, we should not send him to the cross. They both speak justice, even though I bet they didn't want to. I, I guarantee they didn't want to. I guarantee they, maybe Joseph even saw when Nicodemus was chewed out for just even kind of being like, could we do this the right way? I guarantee Joseph didn't want to go, hey, by the way, like we shouldn't crucify him. I guarantee he didn't want to do that. There's no way. 
because of the implications on his life, on how uncomfortable that would make him, because of his own fear of those religious leaders. And yet, because Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple of Christ, he found himself standing up for what God stands up for. And that, in that moment, it was a moment where he speaks justice. Like, there's no way these guys wanted to miss Passover. But they lived out justice. So when you're a disciple wherever you're at, you're going to find at times, you're going to speak out even if it might get you hurt or in trouble or looked down upon. Now listen, this does not give you clearance to speak out sinfully. Don't do that. Don't hear, well, God hates this so I can speak out sinfully. No. But it does give you clearance to speak out when you should even when your words might not change the situation. Did you see that? Nicodemus's words didn't change the situation. Joseph's words didn't change the situation. When your words don't change the situation, then let your actions change the situation. Because that's what these guys did. You know what I love about this story? You know what I love about this passage? You'd miss it if you didn't understand Passover, if you didn't understand Jewish law, if you didn't understand these things. What I love about this passage is Mary is not burying her son. All the women that loved Jesus that were at the cross there, they're not burying Jesus. The people that had to watch this person they loved so deeply, brutally killed, be brutally killed, they didn't have to bury him. You know why? Because two Jewish religious leaders said, you know what, we'll become unclean for your sake. We'll make it so you guys can go to Passover. We will forsake going to Passover ourselves. We will bury Jesus so you can go to Passover. And you can kind of see that in the story. It seems like after some of the big parts of Passover, they go back to the tomb. The women. Mary didn't have to bury her son because these guys spoke justice and then they lived out justice. When you live out justice, you bring more beauty and shalom and goodness into the world. And that's what these guys did at a cost to themselves. When you're a disciple of Jesus, wherever you're at, you're going to find yourself in situations like this where you have to embody justice, where you have to act out justice, and it will come at a cost to yourself very often. Most of us just like step one, speak out and move on. What if we became a people that began to live out justice as well, to bring more beauty and shalom and love and goodness into the world? What if we became like that? I think if you look at the cross long enough, if you look at what Jesus did on the cross for us, you will not be able but to help, you will not be able to help yourself but to live out justice, speak out justice, steward your influence well, work differently, and be a disciple wherever you're at. That's what these guys did, okay? Look at the cross and let it change you in those ways. Okay, that was just the first thing. Um, Second thing that this passage teaches us. The second thing is this. Some of us, some of us need to recognize where God is moving. Some of us need to recognize where God is moving. Joseph, we see, he's looking for the kingdom. And it seems like he recognized where God is moving and establishing his kingdom. Nicodemus, I don't know. 
It does seem like he's looking for the kingdom. It does seem like he's looking for where God is moving. And it does even seem like he is in the places where God is moving. He's standing up for Jesus, and then he's helping bury Jesus. What, what I love about this passage is it, it's just a beautiful kind of cap end to Nicodemus' story. You see God moving in this conversation. You, are, you, you kind of wonder, is God moving when Nicodemus stands up for Jesus? And then you see Nicodemus making himself unclean to bury Jesus and honor Jesus in his death. And you kind of got to go, God must be moving. God's doing something in Nicodemus' life, whether he recognizes it or not. For us, as the people of God, we have to develop a discipline of recognizing where God is moving. It can be easy to not see where God is moving, but we as the people of God need to look and see where God is moving because we don't have a God far off. We have a God who has come to earth and has sent his spirit. And now we get to interact with God in all sorts of ways. And again, that's not always easy to quantify. And I think sometimes people make things up, but we need to Look for where God is moving. God is on the move. God is moving. Some of you in this room, like God has been moving in your life and you've just kind of been ignoring it. Or maybe you're like, is that God? And, and you're kind of, no, I don't think that's God. And listen, I don't think every single thing you think is God is God moving. But some of you know that God has been reaching out that God has been doing something, that God has been moving, that God has been working, that God has been revealing himself to you. If that's you in this room, you have to recognize where God's moving. Recognize it. Because on the other side of recognizing where God is moving, you're going to find the resurrection. You're going to find life in him. You're going to find what life is really supposed to be about. Teens in the room, recognize where God is moving. See where he's moving in your life. Listen, I get it. I grew up in the church. Sometimes growing up in the church, it's just so hard to see God for a variety of reasons. Sometimes it feels like, man, is this all fake? Am I just doing what my parents want me to do? Like, I don't know if God is moving, but some of you teens, you know that God has done these different things in your life. And then you go back to school or you go back to YouTube or you go back to whatever and you forget that God has been moving in your life. Teens, I love you so much. Recognize where God has moved in your life. Teens, you want hope. You want life. You can only find it in Jesus. Recognize where King Jesus, through his spirit, has been moving into your life. Not just teens in the room. All of us in the room need to recognize where God is moving. Because I don't know if Nicodemus did. I think Joseph did. And I think Nicodemus probably did. But we need to recognize where God is moving in our life. I, I, I have this friend um, I kind of grew up with, essentially, from my teen years. And he was a Christian. And we did a lot of Christian things together. We went to a lot of Christian events together. There was a lot of spiritual moves of God in our lives together. Uh, a number of years ago, he walked away from Jesus. He said, I can't, I, I don't want to believe this anymore. I can't believe it. It's hard for me to believe it. And so it was heartbreaking for me, obviously. Like, this is like one of my closest friends. We, sh we had all these shared experiences. Our faith seems so wrapped up together. And so uh, I, I was hanging out with him, and I just go, hey, man, what about all those moves of God? 
What about all those moves of God we saw? What about this thing or that thing? Like, what do you think happened in those situations? What do you think was going on? And to his credit, he goes, I don't know. He, he didn't deny that those things happened. He's like, I don't know. Those things did happen. I don't know if it was God. Maybe it was. I don't know. My prayer for my friend is that he would recognize where God has moved in his life. My prayer for us is that we would recognize where God has moved in our life. Let's be a people that recognize where God is moving. Let's not miss our God who's closer to us than it seems. Okay, let's look for that. Okay, third thing. The third thing that this passage teaches us is this. Don't fall into a reverse Phariseeism, okay? Don't fall into a reverse Phariseeism, okay? Here's what I mean, and I hesitate. I really hesitate to say this because I think a lot of us struggle and uh, struggle more with the Pharisees than we realize, and we kind of uh, have a hard time bringing the vulnerable into our life. We have a hard time bringing those on the margins of society into our life. Uh, I think we struggle with a lot of the things the Pharisees say, so I hesitate to say this, but I still want to say this. Don't let a reverse Phariseeism creep into your life because I think I've begun to notice that for some of us, there's this thing called reverse Phariseeism that's creeped in our life. And so here's what I think a, a reverse Phariseeism is. It's one that says, hey, if someone's rich, they can't be a disciple of Jesus. It's one that says, hey, if someone has power or authority or status, they can't be a disciple of Jesus. It's a reverse Phariseeism is one that says, hey, if that person's part of the majority, if that person's part of the ruling power, like if that person's in any way, in that way, part of those things, they can't be a, a disciple of Jesus. Friends, I think that's a reverse Phariseeism. And I, I, I've kind of watched it creep into our midst and at times into my own heart. Joseph of Arimathea proves that that's just not true. Joseph of Arimathea just, he kind of spits in the face of all that. He's rich, he's powerful, and he's part of the ruling religious majority. And yet, he's still a disciple of Jesus. So do not, don't become a reverse Pharisee that says only the rich and powerful, uh, or that says the rich and the powerful and the majority, they can never be disciples of Jesus. It's just not true, as much as you might want it to be. Listen, I, I get it. Some, you might be reading some of these passages, like the Beatitudes, for instance, or how Jesus talks about riches and wealth and, and all that, and you might go, I don't know. I, I mean, it, it does seem like it's harder. The more money you have, the more wealth, the more power, the more of that that you have, it does seem like it's harder to become a disciple of Jesus. But in one of those moments, what Jesus said to Peter, for instance, was, hey, all things are possible with God. So is it harder for those in those categories? It seems like that's what Jesus is saying, but it also seems like Jesus is saying, I'm doing all the work anyways. So do the, do the rich and the powerful in our world need to see that they're weak and poor before God to be healthy disciples? Yeah, absolutely. But they still can be disciples of Jesus. Don't let a reverse Phariseeism creep into our midst and make you think, those categories of people could never be disciples of Jesus. 
I'll be honest, these guys, Joseph of Arimathea in particular, and Nicodemus, if he was a true disciple, they give me hope. Because I don't know if you have this when you read the Bible. When I read the Bible and I get to the sections about how God talks about the powerful and how God talks about the rich, I'm kind of like, ooh, like, uh, I'm a little worried. And I get a little worried because I see how much power and wealth I have compared to the rest of the globe. If I look at just the rest of the globe, the other 7 billion or 8 billion, whatever it is, people on this planet, and I see how much wealth and power I have, and then I read what the Bible says about power and wealth, I go, oh, man. Can I even be part of the kingdom? Joseph of Arimathea, in God's work in his life, shows, yeah, even me, even me, even I can be part of the kingdom of God. So don't fall into a reverse Phariseeism. There's no place for that in Jesus' kingdom. So I, I love this little passage. I love this little passage that describes the burial of King Jesus. We've got these two unlikely guys, one of which was a secret disciple, the other, I think, a hesitant disciple, find themselves burying Jesus. Because they're disciples where they're at, stewarding their influence well and standing up for what God stands up for, we get to see God moving in their lives. And they show us that people we don't expect can be citizens in Jesus' kingdom. May the cross of Christ change us that much. Amen, church? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for these little details in Scripture that can show us a lot. All of the words in Scripture are profitable for our teaching. And, and so, God, thank you for teaching us through this little passage. Thank you for showing us what you were doing in Joseph's life and in Nicodemus' life. God, may we look at the cross and be changed by it in all these ways. We're going to fall short in all these ways too, God. Like we're not going to do these things perfectly, but may we, every time we don't, look, don't do it perfectly, may we then look at the cross, look what you did, and then embody it again. God, we love you. We need you to be whole, healthy disciples of you. We need that. God, may we be a church that has a whole bunch of unlikely disciples in all kinds of ways, not just in the way that Joseph of Arimathea was, but in every way possible that we can be so that we can display who you are to the world. God, we love you and we need you and we're thankful for you. Amen.